for China, it's not about human lending. They're not talking about sending the first Chinese woman or the Chinese man. They're talking about building space, logistical infrastructure, so that they can establish permanent presence. So it's a very different mindset in terms of thinking about the moon. Hello, Space Watchers. I am Emma, senior editor of Space Watch Global, and this is a new episode of Space Cafe Radio, your radio channel dedicated to emerging trends and live conferences in the space sector. Today's guest is Dr. Namrata Goswami. Namrata is a senior analyst, author, academic entrepreneur, and an expert of Indo-Pacific space power and space governance. In her book, Scramble for the Skies, she made a very interesting argument about the influence of key cultural factors in influencing the geopolitical strategies and space governance. And this is exactly what we discussed together. What's the role of cultural differences in determining the power strategy of a nation? And can a different cultural background influence the space domain? Namrata says, absolutely yes. And she built a very strong case to support it. Listen up to this compelling interview. I'm sure you will enjoy it. Namrata, thanks a lot for being here with us. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. I've been reading your books for a long time. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure as well from my side. I would like to take a look with you at the China-US and China-Russia space picture at large. But before that, I would like to start from the concept of strategic culture, which is something that you discussed in your book, Scrambles for the Sky. So China's strategic culture is different from ours, and this difference somehow defines its approach and its goals to space. Could you explain us better what's the backbone of China's strategic culture and what is China trying to achieve with space? Sure. So if you look at China's conception of strategic culture, they start from two very critical premises. One is that they rate or or rooted to their own civilizational construct of who they are. So the century of humiliation plays a very critical role, the destruction of the treasure ships in the 15th century. So when I went to, for example, uh, Shangzhou, and then I traveled to one of the museums there in terms of China's maritime construct, the century of humiliation played a critical role in terms of who they are and what they want to become. So given that their strategic culture is about maintaining a particular leadership role in space, which is informed by their own history construct, and then they give a very primary role to the legitimacy and the leadership of the Communist Party of China to maintain that. So that's about strategic culture. But what do they want to become based on that? So there are three things China identifies, especially on the President Xi Jinping, who has actually now called upon not just the population of China, but also the People's Liberation Army officers, that China should be very proud of its civilization and who it is, right? So the three things they want to achieve One is that they want to ensure that they have leadership in technology. So the three technologies that China has identified are space, artificial intelligence, and robotics, okay? The second thing that they want to achieve based on that investment is to ensure that they achieve leadership role, by which they mean not just strategic leadership, but operational leadership in 20 years. So I would say by 2040, 2042. And then finally, what is important for them is that they view space as part of their larger grand strategic thinking. So it's not just an operational domain. Operational domain is the means to achieve the goal of becoming the leader. Do you think they can achieve it in 20 years? 
So if you look at the goals that they have identified, one of the goals that they've identified is getting to cislunar space, which is the space between the Earth and the moon. And already they are the only country that actually has a far-side landing, the only robotic rover that's alive on the moon as we speak, the Chang'e 4. They're the only country in the 21st century that have been able to show you that they can get sample return from the near side all autonomously. So it's a very difficult feat to achieve, and they have done it. And then if you look at their goals by, say, 2040, they want to become present in on the moon by 2036 in collaboration with Russia. They're the only country that has a Magpie Bridge communication satellite in L2, which is Lagrange point, which is the gravitational point where Earth-Moon gravitation force comes together. It's a great place to be. And so if I look at what they have achieved so far, so they have already achieved some of the things they have set, right? So cislunar presence they will achieve it because they have already have the capability. The second is they want to have space-based solar power, which is a renewable energy. They're the only country that has already demonstrated capability where you can wirelessly beam. In the last year, they did that. Japan did it like a few years back. So you see they're achieving that. And finally, because they have highlighted space as part of critical infrastructure, which the U.S. hasn't done as yet, the priority and investment is on it, right? Satellite internet, space-based support, civil space military fusion. So these are all part of the critical space infrastructure. So I think they will try to achieve. Now, I'm not someone who can predict fully that they might get it, but at least looking at what they have achieved in the past, we should be very carefully watching that space. They're delivering. They're not just promising. Let's say this. My understanding is China changed in a sort of way its approach to space, towards space in 2015. So what do you think that prompted such change? What did push the, uh, this change? Yes, absolutely. Since the Gulf War, which is the first Gulf War and then the second Gulf War, right, 1991 and then 2003 by the U.S., for the first time, China woke up to the possibility that with the help of space, you can move your military line of, out of sight, right? You can track missile. You can precisely target, right, which the U.S. military showcased. And so China's obsolete system, which was not based on such capability, suddenly they had a huge reformation movement within the Academy of Military Sciences. That was a wake-up call, right? But because you had Hu Jintao in power, Hu Jintao is a president who was very careful not to showcase China's assertive military behavior. So he did not make that shift. They recognized it. But when President Xi Jinping came to power, he was very clearly in the Mao camp where he believed that China needs to become more assertive internationally. And secondly, in the military strategic guideline, for the first time, they decided and they realized that they have to include space as part of their operational joint warfare, right? For example, if there is a Taiwan scenario, President Xi is very serious about the, uh, you know, liberation of Taiwan, as they call it, right, including it in the mainland. So those are the reasons why they actually, because of President Xi's willingness to assert China's capability, they included, for example, in their military strategic guideline 2015, taking the strategic initiative. Hu Jintao was very careful not to say that, right? There's a change in leadership. President Xi is a military officer. He's different from Hu Jintao, who is a technocrat, right? Strategically different in terms of thinking. Second, uh, if you look at their operational uh, concepts, it's very offensive, So if they would argue that if you want to deter a particular adversary, you need to attack all their systems, not just military. So very offensive in nature. And then they included space as part of that domain, that cross domain. So leadership was the key in the change.
which infrastructures China has that the U.S. does not have? What do you think is the point of weakness? I think moon. The U.S. doesn't have an infrastructure today to go to the moon. Starship has not yet launched, but it's not really a lunar rocket. The space launch system, which is NASA's system, is supposed to be the rocket a heavy lift rocket, not yet tested. But China already has a capability. It's already there on the moon. It's already there in Lagrange Point. And I think the strategic culture point here is that unlike the U.S., which hasn't identified cislunar space as a critical area of focus, it's more about civil. Go to the moon, send American astronauts to the moon again like Apollo. For China, it's not about human landing. They're not talking about sending the first Chinese woman or the Chinese man. They're talking about building space logistical infrastructure so that they can establish permanent presence. So it's a very different mindset in terms of thinking about the moon and strategically thinking about the moon because they see cislunar as a high ground. If you can achieve that high ground, you control the access from low Earth orbit to deep space. Let's speak about compellence. Compellence in China doesn't have the same mean that it has in the Western society. How is it different? And can you give me some examples? Sure. So in the Western construct, when you think about compellence, you think about compellence in terms of escalatory ladder. I make a move and you make a move, then I make a higher move and it gets escalation to a point that you can think about nuclear. Unthinkable, but has happened in the Second World War. And so the escalatory ladder is very, very quick. Unlike that, in China, compellence is not about escalation. So if you look at how they think about compellence, they would engage in an activity which is a compellence behavior, that it would induce an adversary to behave or back off. For example, South China Sea Island, everybody has backed off. Tibet, India has backed off. If you think about East China Sea, again, compelling behavior. But it does not escalate into larger conflict. So they send you a signal, they induce a particular behavior, and then they actually de-escalate and want to negotiate, which is very different from the Western conception of compellence. So an example is Nehru. When India-China fought a border war in 1962, China was responding to its allegation that India was building forward post in the border. So if you look at the archives that they have declassified in China, India has not declassified its archives. They argue that their engagement with India at the border war was only for the border to basically teach India a lesson and then unilaterally withdraw. But Nehru, because he was so much guided by Western concepts of compellence, he thought China would escalate. But then when China withdrew, he was puzzled. But of course... India, China, the basic idea was that India should retreat from the border conflict and it defeated India. So it was a signal. So different in terms of its conception. Incredible how culture can make such a difference, even in such a jig-like war. Incredible. Let's speak about China and Russia, the strategic partnership. What do you think of it? So the China-Russia partnership is actually something we should be deeply concerned about because this is not new. If I may, most of the analysis that comes out of, say, the U.S. is that this is an opportunistic partnership. There is no substance to it. The moment they find something not to their liking, they would break apart. But I think that misunderstands the actual depth of the relationship. So this relationship is not new. It has been going on for the last, at least after the Soviet Union's fall in 1991. From then on, China has learned lessons, first of all, from the Soviet collapse. And secondly, it has upgraded its relationship with Russia since 2000. They signed a treaty of good neighborliness. And then when President Xi came to power, he upgraded the relationship even more. So in 2013, when he first took over, he said that the most important partnership for China is basically Russia. 
and so very clear in terms of the strategic intent. So this is not just rhetoric. Across all level of Chinese and Russian bureaucracy, they have established institutional exchanges, which means they're building memory of the relationship. And so the biggest insight into their relationship came when Russia had already decided at that time to invade Ukraine. But Putin, of course, visited Beijing just before the uh, Winter Olympics. And in my estimation, if I may, in my perspective, since I studied the relationship, I think that he was looking for reassurance from China that it would support. And it got it. So if you look at the 6,000 word joint statement they signed just before the Winter Olympics, I read it line by line. It says that China actually agrees with Russia that the NATO expansion in the East, especially Ukraine, is not in Russia's legitimate interest. And it agrees that there has to be an alternate international order. You should read the statement. It's written there. So the moment I saw that, I knew that Putin had reassurance from China that implicitly it would support. And my strategic insight is that if he, they had, he had not got that, I think he would have hesitated too. So you think that the explicit condemnation that China made of Russia's move on to Ukraine after the event of February 2022 is a sort of staged, um, like, like, okay, officially we condemn you, but then implicitly they're still... Uh, well, look at the facts. I always go by the facts. So Ru China has never said that it is condemns Russia. What China has actually said is that it is against violent intervention, Right never mentioning Russia. If you look at China's voting behavior in the United Nations Security Council and the UN General Assembly, it has voted against and abstain from any resolution that deplores the Russian intervention. So I think I should urge your audience that you should look at the facts and then decide. Because if China was really officially against the invasion, if I may, they would have voted against it. They are a permanent member of the UN Security Council, very, very huge influence where they abstained. And then in the UN General Assembly, they actually voted against a resolution, which means that they officially have not condemned the Russian intervention. They have stated in some terms that we are against violent intervention, uh, sovereignty, territorial integrity, but never condemning Russia directly. So it's a very interesting strategic messaging that China is doing. Diplomacy is yes. Last question, U.S., How does the U.S. position itself against China in the new space race? That's a great question because that's a part of my work. So the U.S. has been a lead actor for since the fall of the Soviet Union and maintains that particular edge in terms of space capacity. I think where the U.S. is falling behind is space vision. If you compare both countries, China seems to be coming out with very clear strategic vision. For example, its white paper of 2021 very clearly states it's about cislunar space. It's about planetary defense for humanity, which means you will develop asteroid deflection capability, which the world wants. It's about building cooperation across the board with countries in the Belt and Road Initiative, Spatial Information Corridor, right? In contrast, if you look at the U.S. space vision, it doesn't exist. You don't have a clear vision of why the U.S. is going to space in the 21st century. The U.S. comes up with programs that looks very bilateral, but at the global level, it seems to be ceding that leadership because it's not able to articulate very clearly why it's going to space. So in my perception, if you look at how great powers behave, it is clear that China is a great power and wants to become the leading great power. And that's why they are building this long-term road. Whereas the U.S., because it's a democratic system, change of administration, 
partisan politics has been unable to come up with a clear goal as to why it wants to go to space. And once you don't have that, you can actually seed leadership. And secondly, your own private sector does not know why it's investing in space, right? It's not just about reusable rockets. It's about building that edge. But because the long-term vision is mis missing, you might not be able to build that capacity. And so I think that's how I would see the comparison. I'll finally end by saying that one of the critical areas that China has included in its white paper is cislunar space, which is, as I said, the critical high ground. You have certain policy documents in the U.S. talking about it, but you do not have a White House level vision. So if you do not have that kind of direction supported by Congress, you will seat that particular high ground. Fantastic. Namrata, thanks so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, till the next time, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. If you want to keep the pulse of the space industry, please visit our website at www.spacewatch.global and subscribe to our newsletters. And of course, don't forget to become a space watcher. I'm Emma Gatti, Senior Editor of Space Watch Global, your independent perspective on space. See you next time. Ciao.